Hello and welcome. You're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. This month on Exocast 43B, we're going to be talking with Natalia Guerrero about NASA's test mission. And feel free to check out this month's other episodes, Exocast 43C, where we're going to try and answer the question, can we ever travel to an exoplanet? And of course, Exocast 43D, in which we'll cover all the latest happenings in exoplanet news. Uh, but now we are joined, as I mentioned, by another pioneering exoplanet researcher. So I'm going to throw it over to Hugh to introduce our guest. Yeah, that's right. So this month we're joined by MIT's Natalia Guerrero. So welcome on the show. Thanks. So she works in the office of the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, which is, of course, TESS, which is run here out of the MIT Kavli Institutes. So yeah, so welcome. Um, you wear many different hats yes. as kind of a TESS, uh, TESS office. So communication, TOI management, instrument testing, and of course, some research as well on the side. So, so why don't you start, though, giving us a brief overview of what exactly TESS is and what it's kind of trying to do? Yes. So TESS is a small refrigerator-sized thereabouts uh, satellite orbiting the Earth right now, uh, looking at the northern hemisphere. It has four wide-angle cameras that are imaging a huge swath of the sky. It stares at that for two 13-day orbits, or 27 days, and it's looking for planets using the transit method. So we're hoping to find planets around bright nearby stars, because that is a really great catalog for uh, observers here on Earth and with access to space telescopes to go and follow up and confirm hopefully a large number of exoplanets. So to take us through a bit of the timeline, so how long has it been going and, and how long have you been involved in the project? So TESS launched in April 2018, but it's actually been in development at MIT and MIT Lincoln Lab for much longer than that. The proposal and all of the development for the spacecraft and the instrument has been in the works for about a decade. Uh, this actually came from the transient search community. So the PI George Ricker is actually really into transients and um, worked on an X-ray transient mission and wanted to say, hey, like, what can we use this sort of wide angle survey type technology for? And the transient, you mean kind of like supernovae? Yes. And those kind of big yes. distant explosions. Yes. Right. So he, so coming from that detector space to wanting to find exoplanets with something similar. And so TESS was born out of that overlap, actually, between big galactic type astrophysics and exoplanets. Oh, well, and I guess TESS is kind of doing both now, right? It's not yes. just searching for exoplanets. Yes. George is probably happy about <laughs> Indeed. So I came on to TESS to do camera testing. So we have four cameras and in order for us to be sure they're going to work in space, we had to test them in space-like environments here on Earth. And so that is making sure that they had the focus correct and that before and after doing vibration and thermal testing to make sure they'd survive launch, that they continue to behave consistently. So that cool. was a lot of fun. So how do you how do you simulate space? Do you, you put it in a vacuum in a dark place and like put it in front of a TV screen or something like this? Or? Yes, something actually very similar to that. Okay. So, good. Um, the, yeah, each camera got its own vacuum chamber and we named the vacuum chambers after different pop culture dragons just to keep <laughs> them straight. 
So we had, yeah, we had Draco, the constellation, and then we had Norberta from Harry Potter, Smog from Lord of the Rings. Nice. Um, and it was the, it was a very sort of nerdy thing to do. But yes, yeah, so they were in these <laughs> vacuum chambers, um, and we cooled them to minus 75 degrees Celsius, which is sort of close to the temperature of space, and then um, shown fiber optic lights into or into an optical array that would make it seem like these were artificial stars and we could tune the wavelengths of light coming into the camera and move it over the sensor so we could test sort of over a few pixels what stars would look like in the cameras and how they would look in different parts of the camera cool because the lenses are actually like a fisheye so the in the corners, they the stars sort of stretch out, and that doesn't affect the your ability to measure how much light the stars are emitting. It just makes the the stars themselves look a little bit triangular, a little bit stretched out. How did you kind of get into and involved in that camera testing and that camera development? From it's more of an engineering side rather than the science side, which you're working on right now. Yeah, that's right. I actually came to test through a really unusual path. Uh, my background is actually in dark matter particle detectors. And so I was working on a big gas detector that was trying to measure the interaction between dark matter and particles of a neutral gas and try to detect a signal from that. And those signals are very rare, and the so the detectors have to be very sensitive. So I was working in that field and knew about vacuum chambers and signal processing. Um, but it's a very narrow field, and it's a very hard measurement to make. And you actually wanted some detection. <laughs> yes, and it, We've heard that before from someone. <laughs> yes, and photons are just so much easier to measure than dark matter particles. Um, but I also really love telescopes. I studied astronomy and physics in undergrad, and I, I really missed that side. So I saw this opportunity with tests come up, and I jumped on it. Sure. Fantastic. Yeah. So in terms of the testing, um, was it exactly as expected when TESS was launched? Um, when TESS was launched, we were really surprised and pleased that the cameras worked beautifully. And it was it was scary to stand there at Cape Canaveral in, and watch tests just sort of rise up off of the launch pad and disappear. And you're like, okay, I lost so much sleep over this spacecraft, <laughs> and now it's up there. Um, but yeah, as soon as it finished sort of getting into its final orbit and turned on the cameras for the first time, we got back the images. And they looked beautiful, just exactly like what the simulations had predicted and even better the yeah the performance of the cameras on orbit has been incredible and it's it's a really challenging thing to do and doing the camera testing i really realized like this is this is really uh we we really have to hand it to the engineers that make these sort of long-term spacecrafts like spitzer and hubble um work so well because once it's up there there's there's nothing you can really do yeah what in terms of, like, as researchers, when we work on a telescope, we publish the papers, and that's how we get credit. You know, that's how we get acknowledgement for our work. But for most engineers, what's the kind of credit that they get for these kind of projects? Because there must be hundreds of engineers that worked on tests yes. that don't get on the papers, effectively. 
The they're actually tested a good job, I think, recognizing a lot of the engineers. The really cool thing was a lot of people got to go to the launch, and so right. being able to see the thing that you worked on launch is really a special experience, and to be able to bring your family. Um, you also get access to like the cool test swag patches, etc. Um, but I think the most special thing that the engineers got, and myself included, was we all um, put our signatures down um, on, and these got put onto a big plaque that was mounted onto the side of the spacecraft. So all of the engineers, all of the technicians that contributed to building tests, their names are now on tests as it's orbiting in space. And yours too, I imagine. Yeah. Cool. That's so really I cool. think that's a really beautiful thing to do for, for the engineering team. And some of the test architects, so some of the people that really contributed a lot to the design and to the ongoing running of the mission, are included in a lot of the test mission papers and papers that are contributed. Right, yeah. So talking along those lines, how is it organized? Your role right now is the manager of the test objects of interest catalog. What is that process and, and what is it that you essentially have to do day to day for that? Yes, so I am, that's right, I'm the test objects of interest manager for the exoplanet catalog that we're putting together from the test data. So what that means day to day is we uh, wait for sectors of data to come down from the spacecraft and those are passed directly to MIT they're sent to the processing center at NASA Ames, but we also have an internal pipeline that processes the full frame images. So looks at the millions of stars in these giant wild, wide field images and pulls out light curves for those and looks for transits in them. And Spock does the same thing for the tiny apertures of test data that are taken for a list of really promising stars. And so these data are taken every two minutes. So we have this really fine-grained, almost time-lapse of what each of these stars is doing. And so they an analyze all those products. So then we get this gigantic pile of data at the test science office that we have to then sift through. And we use both automated and manual tools to cut down from hundreds of thousands of light curves to a more manageable tens, hundreds that we can look at with a team here at MIT. And he was part of that team while he's working at MIT these months. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was wondering actually that you mentioned how automated it is and how yeah. we only look at a few hundred candidates. Do you think that it could ever be fully automated, this kind of procedure of, of going from hundreds of thousands of stars to planet candidates? Yes. So the vetting procedure, so what we do has been, we've trained basically a machine learning um, neural net to recognize when something is a transit or isn't a transit. And from there we go and look at the transit-like things visually because humans are really good at pattern recognition and so we capitalize on that and have used people's experience looking at hundreds of exoplanet transits to visually classify what we think is worth following up as an exoplanet. Um, but yes, as we get more and more of this data that's been labeled by people on the team, we can hopefully train machine learning tools to recognize not only what looks like a transit, what doesn't look like a transit, but what looks like a planet transiting a star as opposed to a star transiting another star. So we, our hope is that we can train computers to do these things, but 
we know that computers are not very good at learning the same way that humans learn. So I would, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I think our, our mindset as astronomers is always that we want to see the data. And even though we're not looking through telescope eyepieces anymore, we're, we still want to see what our telescopes are measuring. And so I, I think personally, like I would have a hard time just letting the computer do it all. I would want to still sort of get in there and look at things myself. Yeah, me too. I mean, I find that process quite enjoyable. Like the reason I joined the vetting here is because I really like that that ability to like take a, take the data and figure out what's a planet and what isn't a planet. I wouldn't want to give that to a, a computer straight away anyway, right? Right. And of course, if any of our listeners want to go looking through the test data, they can go onto the Zooniverse and go and search through the test data themselves to search for planets. So go check that out if you also want to dig through the test data and see if your pattern recognition is is any good or not. Yeah, that's exactly right. And a few of the a few of the really promising things that have been found by people using Zooniverse have ended up being published papers of confirmed exoplanets, and it's been really exciting to see that process happen as well. So in terms of that, that process that you mentioned from, from, from pixel to planet, what, what's the kind of timescale <laughs> we're looking at? And has the, you know, kind of the automated pipeline sped this up a little bit? Or, you know, do we still want to take our time and, and think about it? Yeah, so right now to go from test pixels to exoplanet candidates that we can send to follow up and for other people to observe, that process right now takes about three to four weeks. And that is very speedy compared yeah. to, <laughs> I would say compared to how Kepler, yeah. I think it was like a whole year before people could get the data. Yeah. So that's really interesting. I didn't know that. That's fantastic. Yeah, there's a huge commitment from the team to really make sure that the data are public and are available for people to do either their own exoplanet searches or to grab the test objects of interest or TOIs and go off and look at them themselves and start to get some information on these objects before they move out of our field of view for the year. And this is especially important as TESS is starting to discover more long period planets, things that only transit every 50 days or every 100 days, because you can only get those transits a few times. So we want people to be able to start looking at those planets and those stars as soon as they possibly can. And of course, if you want to look at the TOIs, you can go to exo.mars.stsei.edu and see the observability planets table and see all of the TOIs there and see all of the reports that they're producing for them. Or yeah. you can go to tev.mit.edu. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. The, and this is actually a really interesting process to design because I worked early on with other astronomers here who had a lot of experience with both Kepler and K2 and not only with using the mission products from Kepler for looking at those light curves, but also having to design their own pipelines from scratch. And what are the what are the graphs? What are the markers that tell you that something is a planet candidate? So that was a really interesting design process for me. It was talking to people, learning what worked for you, what didn't work for you. How did you manage manually looking at thousands of light curves and one of the things that came out of Kepler and K2 was more of an automated decision tree type um, pipeline for vetting candidates. And this was the RoboVetter tool. And so working with people at MIT like Chris Burke um, 
on that tool and adapting it for tests was another valuable thing. So we, we didn't have to reinvent the wheel, which was really nice. We could take all of these lessons that we'd learned from Kepler. So these TOIs test object of interests. I guess they aren't test planets yet. So do you want to talk a little bit about um, how we confirm these TOIs as real planets and what could possibly be causing the candidate planets that aren't planets? Yeah, so we release, we've released about 1,700 TOIs so far, and I did a quick check before we started. So we released 1,700 TOIs so far, and about a quarter of those has en- have ended up being false positives or things that mimic but aren't planets. So the, it's really it's exciting, but also a little bit frustrating when something turns out to be a po- false positive, because you're like, shoot, pesky pesky stars imitating planets. So it's mostly st- like binaries, so stars, yeah, so they're the biggest uh, false positive in yes. TOIs. Yeah, eclipsing binaries are definitely like the biggest culprit, but the the way that we confirm exoplanets is we have, there's a few different tiers of follow-up and we work with the other branch of the test science office, which is up the street from MIT at the Harvard SAO Center for Astrophysics. And there, they, there are a few different teams that look with different types of telescopes and a huge network of global observers who look at photometry, so more closely at the star, nearby stars, nearby faint stars, to try and understand what's nearby, what could be varying in brightness, to do reconnaissance spectroscopy which sounds so cool to me, just putting reconnaissance in front of anything makes it sound <laughs> so cool. Um, but yeah, again, trying to understand more about the star, how it's rotating, how its variability could be adding in variations that can get confused with transits. And then once a, and that's often when things are found to be false positives. It's found to be an eclipsing binary system or there's something nearby and variable that is causing the transit signal. If a planet candidate survives that, then it gets to go on to precise radial velocity. So trying to constrain the planet's mass, exciting things like that. And then we start to really get to draw a picture of what this planet looks like, get its mass, get some idea of what its density might be. And then um, until Spitzer uh, turned off, we were able to get sometimes observations with Spitzer. People could start including things in Hubble proposals. And so it's a, it's a long process to confirm an exoplanet and really start to draw its picture fully. So that's why there's only about 40 or so so far that are fully confirmed test exoplanets. Yeah, I think the surprising thing about TESS is that um, despite being a photometric mission, the mission goal is actually to get masses, right? Yes. So I think, is it 50, 50 small planets? That's yes. the goal. So 50 measured masses for planets smaller than four Earth radii or smaller than about the size of Neptune. Right. So how, how close is TESS to that goal? Obviously, it's not finished observations yet. I think we're on our way. So we've definitely found a large number of small planets that are below this radius cutoff. Now the question is, which ones are good candidates for having measured mass? And so the last time I checked, there I think there's maybe about 10 that have this confirmation. So our criterion is that there's a paper in a referee journal about this planet. There's accepted, I guess, as well, yes. right? Yes, yes. Because the slow process, I guess, to get yes. first the RVs and then to get the paper published. Yes. So. But the in terms of people who are following up and trying to get masses for planets, I think there's many more. So I think we're on our way. Yeah. I think we're making good progress. 
So when you when you're observing with Tess, when Tess is looking at these very large fields of of the sky, what what's the biggest issue that you've got to overcome so you can find these planets? That's a good question. So Tess has these huge wide field cameras and we're observing nearly the entire sky in these overlapping regions. And so that means we're getting the regions that have stars that are really densely clustered, places like the galactic plane. And so Tess also has these huge pixels. The pixels in Tess are really large. They cover about 21 by 21 arc seconds on the sky. And that is because we want to catch a lot of photons from these bright stars. But the, the downside of that is when you have a lot of stars densely clustered together, you're not quite sure often which star is actually the one with the transit on it if you have two or three or four in the same pixel. So then you really do have to rely on this tight partnership with your follow-up resources to figure out which star is the one causing the transit. Um, so that's a, that's a fun one, is that we often get these really crowded fields. Another is that because of the nature of the TESS orbit, it's in, it's a, in a two-to-one residence with the moon. And as it's, orbiting the, as it's orbiting the Earth, the spacecraft often gets a little bit of scattered light from both the moon and the Earth. And this creates some um, visual effects often in the corners of the images. And so this can, this can also mimic transit signals sometimes. And so we have to be aware of where, what that signature sort of looks like and whether that's happening at the time uh, that we are also expecting a transit for a particular star. So, and Hugh knows all about this because in the vetting that often happens where... Yeah, scattered light does does play a big role. Right? Yes. I mean, it highlights just uh, the sheer amount of teamwork that's needed for big missions like this and the discovery of planets. Definitely. So, Tess... Officially, the, the primary mission ends in a couple of months, right, in, the, in this summer. So what's the plan for extended missions and how long can TESS go? That's a great question. So TESS is finishing its prime mission, that's right, in July, and we're going to turn around and begin our third year, uh, the beginning of our extended mission. So in that period of time, TESS is going to return to the southern hemisphere where it began, and observe those stars again. And this is going to be really great for confirming the ephemeris when transits start and end and uh, the periods of some of these planets. So that will be really exciting and maybe we can get an additional transit of planets that previously we only measured a single transit for. Um, So that will be exciting. And then in the fourth year, we have, I think, a little bit more of, uh, I think we're still figuring out the year four observing plan, but I think we're going to the north and then moving around from there. But TESS is amazing in that it has no moving parts in the instrument. So it has, and it's very efficient in how it does its pointing because of its orbit. It's very energy efficient. So it can actually go for many years people speculate even like a decade or several decades so we're not limited by cryogen or something like that such that if things continue to work well uh, TESS can keep going for a long time so I think the hope is to continue using TESS as this survey mission that can really look at these parts of the sky for long periods of time and it could be that in that period of time it's also more useful for transients and for seeing the turn on of things like supernovae. Oh, the other thing that's different about the extended mission is right now the TESS full frame images are 
downloaded, they're saved every 30 minutes. And that's already a pretty useful time lapse. But the in the extended mission, these full frame images will be every 10 minutes. So that's a much higher cadence, and that gives us a lot more information about these uh, how these stars are changing and what these planet transits look like. It's really nice, yeah. especially for short transits, because then you get a few more points. Well, yeah, in the, in the vetting, we see like sometimes there's transits with just one point in transit, and so it makes it much harder to figure out if it's real or not. Yeah, you're like, great, awesome, one point. <laughs> that is a short is period planet. Yes. But the, yeah, and for the extended mission, the other exciting thing is the, we'll have a lot of small stars that have a cadence of 20 seconds per image. So that means instead of two minutes, you have an image every 20 seconds. And so that's actually really useful for understanding more deeply what's going on with the star at that time frame. Yeah. How does that kind of change in the volume of data that you will be producing on tests? How does that change? how the telescope has to kind of send that information back to Earth. So the the reason that we can actually up this cadence, both for the full frame images and for the aperture data, are, is because the compression rate on the spacecraft is really good. And this was something that was realized early on in the primary mission, that TESS was able to compress the data really efficiently and send it back down. So. This idea was sort of discussed of, hey, maybe we can take data at a higher frequency and bring things down more often. And yes, once it's on the ground, it has to be impacted, it has to be put somewhere. So we have to plan for that. But in terms of the spacecraft being able to handle it, it's really exciting that it can do that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Tully, you, we've talked about one of the hats that you wear as, uh, as the scientist engineer, but you're also the press officer for TESS. And I, I was wondering, does this present any kind of unique challenges where you're both a member of the science team and also the press officer, right? Are there some times where you feel like maybe MIT wants you to talk a little bit more about this amazing planet, whereas the science team are a bit like, oh, we don't really have enough data. So I was wondering as a, you know, that's an interesting line to, to walk. And if you had any, you know, kind of unique perspectives from, from your time as the test press officer. Yeah, so I'm not quite the press officer. The official person who handles all the press is at NASA Goddard. That's Clarice um, Andrioli. So she is she sort of handles all of the official test features from NASA. I am I acted more of a liaison role between NASA and MIT, and then like the and the news outlets at MIT. So MIT, um, the School of Science, MIT News, Cob the Cobley Institute. And I also manage the social media for Tess at MIT. And yes, it's, it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. Um, I really enjoy being able to know sort of how Tess is perceived in the world. And it's actually, I think one of my, one of the things that I really enjoyed was for the Tess launch. Um, I was part of the group of astronomers that spoke with the press and spoke with influencers and people who are on social media doing science communication and learning about how to phrase what we're doing. We're talking about transits and photometry and follow-up observations and data cadence and how to translate into that into something that someone who doesn't have a background in science can understand, I think is a really valuable endeavor. And it was really exciting to see what people, how excited people are about space. I was not expecting that at all. <laughs> Everyone loves space. Come I on. know, but it was just like, it was amazing the level of engagement we had with the launch. And then to 
also get these really interesting questions of, so why is TESS important? Like, why is looking for exoplanets important? And to be able to step back and sort of think philosophically about this. But the day-to-day as well has also been challenging, for sure, of when we were getting our first results, so the PIMEN-C discovery and then LHS-3844B, those two were first um, test papers. And learning how to really go through that exercise of painting a picture, so sitting down with our team and saying, okay, so we have a measured planet radius of this, and you think the mass is this, and you think the temperature is this, and then to start and figure out how to ask questions that would help an illustrator and that would help the science writer with putting together their feature and their talking points of why is this planet interesting? What does it look like? Could you stand on it? Could you orbit it? Would you melt? What's going on? Um, so trying to do that translation is, is a big stretch for your brain, but I also really enjoy it. Do you have to kind of put the brakes sometimes on the press who get a bit carried away? You know, I remember reading things about habitability, which yes. Do you, it's a, how does that work as kind of on the press side? Do you put? Do you have to? Do you get oversight as to how they interpret these? What comes out of the press? Yes. So it took me a while to adjust to um, how different print media is from our sort of academic journals in that we don't get to peer review. We don't get to fact check. They do that all themselves. So we have to make sure that we're very clear when we sit down for interviews or when we post press releases of what we're saying. And so I think the top three questions I always get are, is it habitable? Could we go there? Does it have life? And I, and so I think it's a good practice for every person who's in exoplanet astronomy to, to answer those questions as soon as they possibly can when speaking publicly about their work, because yeah. it's, it's really good, I think, in that it doesn't sort of saturate people's attention, where if we say, oh, this thing is really cool and it might have life, and we say that for every single planet, it sort of dilutes interest so that when we find something that actually has a lot of potential to be habitable, people are like, eh, but they say that all the time. (laughs) So I think that's important. And then I think the other thing that is important is trying to find something different about the planet that's not necessarily about putting humans there, but why is this cool just by itself? Like People really like tardigrades, even though tardigrades are (laughs) nothing like humans. We have no real use for them, but they're just these weird little microscopic things that survive everywhere. And people think they're great, or at least I think they're great. They're really cute Um, as well, which helps. Yeah, they're really cute. (laughs) That helps too. They're only really cute because they're really tiny. If you make that something like visible... That's not cute anymore. Yeah. Oh, I totally. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> These tiny little water bears, if, if our audience have heard of them before, are, what size are they? They're... Uh, micro? I don't know. I they're micro yeah. size. Like, they're, they're absolutely minuscule. They've got these little suckers on their face and claws everywhere. Go look they're at them really now. They're really cute. If you're listening to but the show. If you make it bigger, not no. cute yeah. anymore. <laughs> nope, nope. But I think that's like another that's another angle that I think we found interesting is with other systems that I've helped our team bring to press. I've talked about like, so why is this interesting to you? Like, why do you care about this system? Why are you spending all of this time staying late at work trying to understand this system and trying to (laughs) pick out why people are interested in something and why it's cool? 
And sometimes it's sort of a meta reason, like, this is a really useful system because it's super easy to observe. This is going to be a playground for us. We can run around and understand what is going on really easily with the system. I Things like that, ones. for example. Yeah. <laughs> those are my favorite. I'll take them. I'll take anything you've got. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's been, that's been also part of it, is not only managing expectations, but getting people to think about why if they were in an astronomer's shoes, why they would care about this planet and what sort of the business of astronomy is. I'm like a big behind the scenes person. I love behind the scenes, how it's made type videos. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah so I'm always trying to sneak more of that in to <laughs> all of our sort of press and media products is like, this is this is the guts. This is how the sausage is made. But I, I mean, with sausages especially, I don't think we want to know how they're made. <laughs> Yeah, vegan. Yeah. <laughs> Ve- vegan sausages are fine. They're just made out of okay. fruit, so right. I've got no worries about That's that. True. <laughs> um, but while we're on this on this topic, um, you uh, alongside your your physics degree, you also have a, a minor in creative writing, right? I, I was on your website earlier. Um, as as well as being kind of involved in um, kind of theatre and art, and it's always good to hear about our guests' non extrasolar interests but i was wondering does that side of um of your life does it complement is does it benefit your your science communication you know in in terms of being able to um you know the the, the things we've been talking about in the last few minutes really that ability to change uh, change tack and and go from academic writing and academic dryness to a little bit more of a creative narrative Definitely. I would say that, um, so yeah, I minored in writing as an undergrad and this was, this came out of a real big decision that I had to make when I started undergrad where I was really weighing the, the pros and cons of doing more of a liberal arts track and doing writing as my primary course or, focusing more on science and on physics and on this topic that I was really starting to enjoy. And so I had to make that decision when I began university and I decided to go with physics because it was really starting to be exciting to me at the time. But I knew that writing was something I really cared about and being in the arts was something that was really valuable to me. So I promised myself, I was like, we're going to make sure that we continue doing this. And a really surprising thing that I found as a student and now working on tests is the, the sort of tip you're always given in writing is write what you know. And that became a really interesting place to draw from as a writer was, I mentioned before that I'm really interested in the sort of the behind the scenes and how things work. And I think the lived experience of an astronomer, of someone in science, is such an interesting ground creatively. And so that informed a lot of my work in theater. And also I did live radio uh, for a number of years after college. And that really influenced a lot of what I created there. Um, But then also on TESS, I've had a really wonderful opportunity to bring together my interest in the arts and what I work on every day in that the test science conference was held at MIT last summer. And I put together as part of the conference program, a concert that had visualizations that I designed uh, with a video artist that blended together uh, full frame images from the test data with videos of sort of light changing in reflections and rainbows on earth. 
and I worked with two composers at MIT to put together a program of music composed for tests of songs about exoplanets and arranged the text with uh, one of the composers, Elena Rohr. And so that was pulled from titles of the test papers up until that time. And so she used that text of new test papers to create the song called Exoplanets. And this was performed by uh, the Lorelei Ensemble, along with a number of other songs that were sort of related to astronomy and space. And so this was a concert that we put together and we had over 500 people come, both from the conference and from the general public. And it was just a really powerful experience for me to actually be able to manifest something that blended together uh, these two parts of my life that are really important to me. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I, 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 even though I'm in TESS, I've learned even more about how TESS works. Great. And, uh, it's great to hear about the kind of non-exoplanetary side as well. So I, I, that was super interesting. Thanks for, yeah. thanks for coming on. Thanks for inviting me. This is wonderful. Exocast. Okay, Natalia, as with all of our guests, we're, we're going to ask you for your favorite planet to adopt into our adopted planet list. So which planet have you gone for and why? I think I would like to propose Pymensi as my planet, and that's because it was the first planet that TESS put out a paper for, and that was led by Chelsea Wong. And this was such an exciting discovery for us. It was, I think, in the first few days that we were looking through the data that Chelsea found this transit of this planet. And she came over to my office and uh, Jen Burt was working next door to me. Jen Burt is a radial velocity astronomer. And she came over and we were all sort of looking at this transit saying, yeah, that's really cool. And Chelsea was really excited because there's already a Pymen B. And this is a really unusual system because Pymen B has this huge six-year orbit and Pymen C has an orbit of only six days. And so it was this really interesting system where we were saying there has to be a story here. This is going to be um, a really unusual thing to find. And because it was so small, it also fit perfectly into the, the test mission requirements. So it was an amazing first find for tests so yeah and of course it's around a star which you can see with your naked eye which is very unusual for a transiting planet i think there was only one before that 55 cancri which was known to transit a naked eye star yes so, so paimen sees continues to be i think in the top five brightest test planets discovered so far and yeah it does fit nicely into tess's claim that a lot of these stars you can see from your own backyard if you squint really hard and have binoculars and it's very clear <laughs> but it's yeah it's a so it was a really exciting system for for us to find and so i have it's an interesting planet in, in and of itself but i also have sentimental attachment to it That's as well the best kind of adopted planet i think um more than happy to have it in our family yeah i'm very glad you've, you've chosen that one thanks thanks so much for joining us once again and thanks for choosing pymenc if you want to follow Natalia on Twitter, I think it's at Sleepless at MIT, is that right? Sleepless in MIT. In MIT, okay. Well, thanks again for joining us. Of course. Yeah, it was a really great and a great planet to add to the adopted family. Uh, to all our listeners, do not forget to look out for our other two episodes this month in which we ask the question, can we ever travel to an exoplanet? And in Exocast 43D, we will cover the latest in the news so you don't have to. So thank you for listening to Exocast. Until next time. Bye. 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 Bye.
This podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hugh Osborne, the Tess Chaos Fellow at MIT and the University of Bern. And Andrew Rushby, a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Music was courtesy of Poddington Bear. Exocast. I have exoplanets.